Okay, good morning. Today is Thursday, November 30, 2023, and this is class 8 in the discussion of Patanjali and Buddha Dhamma. And as you would know, this is a very fine <laughs> combed uh, analysis of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. And um, the more I look, the more I find, and it's really good material. <laughs> so, uh, from the same Swami J page I referenced last time and previous classes, where he talks about Samyama as the finer tool, where Samyama is the collective, he writes, collective practice of concentration, meditation, samadhi. The collective practice or the unified, the integration in practice of concentrate or I'll use the Sanskrit, dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. Dharana, concentration, dhyana as meditation or sustained practice of concentration, and samadhi as some uh, stabilized concentration that Tibetans may call calm abiding. <clears throat> where in samadhi um, there's a relatively quiet mind without uh, much proliferation of sankara or thought and feeling, sensations, emotions, thoughts and feelings. Uh, they may arise uh, initially, but uh, they subside or we're not so attached to them because the concentration on a meditation object is strong. So samadhi is not the end of the path, it's actually the platform for the higher work. So uh, we're going to get into the details of Samyama even further as the last three uh, Tanga, <laughs> Ashtanga, <clears throat> of the eight Ashtanga limbs or facets of yoga. Ashtanga yoga, originally from Patanjali, means eight limbs or a means of progression and development of yoga. And there are five lower and three higher. But before I do that, I want to just quickly go through uh, Mr. Swami J's short page write-up on Patanjali himself. Uh, this is all linked in the text below. So the title is Patanjali Codifier of the Yoga Sutras. It's a very interesting point. And his first paragraph, Patanjali codified or compiled in a systematic way the art and science of yoga in the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras succinctly outlines the art and science of yoga for self-realization, or moksha, liberation, end of the path. Nothing new was created with the Yoga Sutras, sort of, but rather the ancient practices were summarized in an extremely organized and terse way. Yes. While the Yoga Sutra itself is ancient, archaeological evidence and other texts suggest that the methods described in the Yoga Sutras were being practiced as early as 3000 BCE. Another person who does this dating. BCE, obviously, before Common Era. Common Era is uh, called <laughs> the birth of Yeshua, the last 2000 years, zero to now. So 1000 BC. 1000. Well, 3,000 before the common era. I'm sorry, actually, 3,000 BCE would be 5,000 years ago. I'm not sure about that, but 
Um, yeah, um, while Moses and Akhenaten, if they were two different fellows, were in uh, Egypt and the, and the area of the Israeli, you know, Israel-Palestine uh, Palestine zone, uh, over in India, um, there were yogis in the forest doing practice who were very well aware of the uh, importance of preparatory work on behavior and morality and some study, study and uh, right conduct, then the higher practices of concentration, <laughs> deep meditation leading to samadhi, that then is the foundation for the greater realizations, the greater realizations and uh, releases. So uh, whether that was 3000 BC or 2000 BC, I don't know, but same as in China, there were Chinese hermits <laughs> at uh, definitely 2000 BC, BCE. Um, 3000, I'm not sure about. So he says, uh, oral tradition states the date may be even earlier. This is post-Atlantean. The post-Atlantean age, if, if Atlantis went down, you know, 10,000 BCE, meaning 12,000 years ago, or something like that, uh, 5,000 years later, 5,000 BCE, meaning BC, um, civilization was rebooting. And there were uh, a whole bunch of uh, yogis in certain places, in India, in China, um, uh, Tibet, Peru, Turkey, right? It was the Atlantean uh, transfer. So going on, dates, he says, scholars estimate that Patanjali lived sometime between 400 BCE and 200 AD. So not that old. Though they're in disagreement about the dates, while scholars debate the actual dates of Patanjali, oral tradition accounts for the apparent time differences by explaining that the name Patanjali is a surname and is the name of a lineage or a school of teachers, students, and sages, rather than being only one person. That's interesting. So Patanjali is the lineage. However, for convenience sake, Patanjali is spoken of as a single person who might have been the founder of the lineage. <clears throat> Don't know. Although Patanjali is a surname of the lineage, or maybe, there have also been several individuals with the name Patanjali, which may or may not have been related with the lineage relating to the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So, most likely, there's no doubt that there have been multiple sages or yogis named Patanjali. Likewise, it's really, it's certain that that he wasn't alone. <laughs> he wasn't some guy uh, without a community. He was a guy in a community or associated with lineage in a community. And the name Patanjali may be of the whole lineage, but we don't know. It goes on. Next section, oral tradition. In addition, and he um, is quite familiar, more familiar with the oral tradition than, than I am, of course. He said, in addition... Yoga traditions are historically oral traditions, and some say that Yoga Sutras from Patanjali were not written down for at least a couple of hundred years after they were systematized by Patanjali. During that, people, <clears throat> during that period, it was the custom for the entirety of the Yoga Sutras to be memorized <clears throat> as part of the practice. That's true. 
This type of learning is still done today by a few teachers and students, though many of them now do this as an intellectual study of Sanskrit rather than as an aid to practice and direct experience. So memorization as an aid to practice and practice as the basis for direct experience and direct experience, the nature of which is finer and finer insights or seeing the nature of, of, phenomenal, of phenomena, particularly the phenomena that are associated with so-called self, the phenomena of the five skandhas, <laughs> not only outer form or the form of our body, but sensations and perceptions and samkara, sankara, uh, thought, form, generation, thoughts and feelings, all coming from vasanas, tendencies, um, beliefs, personal psychology, and beyond, and consciousness itself, or subjectivity itself. <clears throat> know thyself um, is to know the true nature of what we take as a self, uh, take to be a, you know, only, uh, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, individuated, separate being, the self, me, my identity. <clears throat> Seeing into that, uh, one can see into uh, reality. Uh, and that's one reason that they keep using the word self, or the self-realization is the phrase used for the goal. Because uh, it's not outside that the goal is discovered. What we seek is not outside, outside the self. But the self is not what we conceive it to be, <laughs> or what I is, or this one seeking, um, is not as uh, currently conceived. And so one has to be careful with that. It's a double-edged sword, double-edged knife. Uh, what we seek is not outside. But what we seek, if it's so-called inside, and this whole thing of inside-outside, our conception of what we're seeking is mistaken. Our conception of where the goal is, even if we have some sense it's not, quote, outside, we are uh, ignorant of the nature of the, of the goal, because we're not finished. So, uh, memorization, there's a long oral tradition, unbroken teaching, and this paragraph he says, while the lineage of Patanjali may or may not have continued in unbroken sequence in the visible or recorded traditions in the plains of India, the practices of Yoga Sutras have continuously been practiced by the sages of the Himalayas. And, and the Buddhist practice is not a heck of a lot different, <laughs> actually. The eight limbs of yoga, the ashtanga of the yoga, um, can be found uh, pretty fully, pretty wholly in Buddha Dhamma. And that's part of the purpose of my doing the series. And the final paragraph I want to read from the page called The Longer History. <clears throat> and he's taking this from another book, a book by Pandit Usharbud Arya uh, from 1986, who wrote this man, Pandit Usharbud Arya. Quote, The tradition of India's philosophical lineages is lost in antiquity, meaning the, the origin, actually, According to the one tantric text, Sri Vidyarnava, there were 71 teachers from Kapila, the founder of Sankhya, considered to be the philosophical basis of yoga, 
to the greatest proponent of Vedanta, Shankaracharya, who taught at the end of the 7th and beginning of the 8th century AD. So 71 teachers from Kapila to Shankaracharya in uh, many centuries. And then from Shankara to the present day, a lineage of up to 76 teachers, they like these numbers, has been enumerated. If this appears to be a long time, the reader might find interesting that the fact that in approximately 1400 BC, <laughs> while 1400 BC, BCE, while, uh, what, uh, Orion and Yahweh were mucking about with the Martian emigres in the Middle East, one trying to help and the other one trying to stymie and manipulate and the whole thing it made a big, I think, kind of a flop that led to the basis of what we're seeing, what we're going through globally today. In India, they say here, in approximately 1400 BC, the Bardarnyaka, uh, it's actually Bardarnyaka, sorry for the poor Sanskrit, that Bardarnyaka, uh, Upanishad enumerated 66 teachers up to that time. So anyway, you got a whole lot of teachers. Patanjali in his work on grammar speaks of 84,000 rishis, and this is where you get into fantasy. Enlightened sages who teach from their experience. <clears throat> Within the Indian tradition, it's almost impossible to assign a date to the rishis. Dot, dot, dot. Okay. The origins are lost in antiquity. There have been countless or uh, human uncountable teachers <clears throat> from the earliest dates at least uh, 2000 or at least 2000 BC BCE so at least 4000 years old it seems to me <clears throat> is the tradition of yoga in India and Gautama came out of that and while while a whole lot of the suttas as I read from Sutta Pitaka many times the I forget the, the, the section but many suttas in Sutta Pitaka are addressed to uh, wayward Brahmins who were receptive to Gautama's teaching because they had some inkling that there was something they were missing and something that Gautama knew or realized that they hadn't through their years of practice Gautama was addressing them however there were other uh, yogis and individuals uh, 2500 years ago, 500 BC the time of Gautama that were still pursuing um, you know, Ashtanga yoga practice meaning yoga practice and there's a, I think a whole lot of Buddha Dhamma that seems to be that is very, totally resonant if not just the same as Ashtanga yoga the eight-limbed delineation of uh, yoga path practice, which is not asana practice only, obviously. <laughs> yoga does not mean uh, moving your body only in the asanas. Asanas are just one of the limbs. So what's today called hatha yoga, which means asana yoga, which means body postures with controlled, regulated breathing. It's basically asana and pranayama. Those are <laughs> limbs of eightfold yoga not the whole of it. Okay, then. Uh, and and 
Uh, I want to go back to, and I think I'm going to finish today, the Alex Scott page on the Yoga Sutras, which was the basis of this series. From the middle of the page, uh, some material we covered last time, and wrap up here and move along. Patanjali, from Alex Scott, Patanjali also says that the means of escape from hindrances may be provided by discriminative discernment, viveka, kyati, as I talked about last time, discernment, liberation, kaivalya is attained by means of discriminative discernment, discernment, which reveals how purush is different from prakriti. And that needn't upset anyone <clears throat> because Purush, while a Sanskrit word that commonly means uh, being or reality, be, beingness reality, being reality, beingness reality, not so different than Sat, it seems to me, is basically like saying realizing the real versus the false, seeing what is rather than mistaken conceptions based on limited perception. We all have limited perception. By that we have limited experience <clears throat> that we perceive uh, with the limited <laughs> perceptions we have, limited capacity for perception, we perceive, thus we experience, uh, and we conceive and uh, make a story out of our limited perception-based experience. Which comes first? Uh, conception or experience? Well, they go together. <clears throat> uh, I look out and I see what I call the, the green tree. Is it my experience of the green tree? Is it my conception? Well, it's my conceiving of my perception. The visual perception I'm conceiving based on my prior experience that this is a green tree. <clears throat> this is the most shallow level of comprehension of material, physical sense-based perception experience, conception, based on memory. Memory of, well, I saw something like that before, or I conceive of something called yesterday when I was sitting here looking in the same way. So based on my thoughts called memory, which are based on my apparent uh, experiences uh, that I perceived and conceived yesterday in this so-called past, uh, I associate the visual imagery that I'm perceiving with the memory conceptions of what I saw yesterday called a tree. <clears throat> that whole thing is, is um, chitta vritti. <laughs> that whole thing is mental fluctuation. That whole thing is restless, false identity-based um, maya, uh, grasping, aversion, ignorance, uh, limited perception, doors of perception not quite cleansed or removed yet. So it's vivek, um, real vivek, wisdom, discernment. Um, it's, it's actually, in Buddhism, it's similar to adiprajna, adipanya. Adi means the greater or the further, the higher. Panya, wisdom, discernment. It's really wisdom, seeing, knowing, like gnosis. Pra-nya. It's the advancement of nya, uh, the, the progress of realization, nya, like gnosis, nya, wo, jnana, nya, same J-N-A. The progression of that, the pra of ya, of nya, <laughs> the pra of nya, <clears throat> that would be my title, the pra of nya. What? You crazy. Screwball. 
uh, the leading advanced uh, progression of realization yeah, into um, what is called wisdom or concept. I mean, wisdom is the conceptualization of clear seeing. It may be clear seeing of the illusory or clear seeing of the non-illusory. See, again, <clears throat> if, if one doesn't do practice, one doesn't really have access to the experiences that I'm talking about. And I've only done some degree of practice, and so I have only some degree of insight, realization, or understanding. But the samyama, as the three higher tangas of the ashta, or limbs of the yoga, <clears throat> um, are uh, irreplaceable. You, you cannot have finer insight without some kind of dedicated practice. And, and whether you call it how Purush is different from Prakriti, or realizing Satchit, or Tatsat, you know, realize the Tatsatchit, the awareness of Tatsat, or Suchness, Thusness, Reality, Sat, Truth, Absolute, True Nature. <clears throat> uh, beyond Anicca Dukkha, of course, beyond the perception and perception itself, which is associated with Anicca Dukkha and grasping aversion, ignorance, and based in Nvidya and ignorance, beyond that, one knows. And that is here put as how Purusha is different from Prakriti. He goes on, when all hindrances to concentration <clears throat> have been overcome, the self, capital S, can act freely and authentically. The highest self, capital S, <laughs> highest self. I mean, you know, if you're using capital S, self, for the reality of true nature, uh, you might want not want to split it into the highest and the lowest, or higher's, higher levels and lower levels. But there is a greater, you know, there are degrees of realization of true nature. And true nature is not my true nature. It's not a possession of the personal self. True nature is tatsat, <laughs> dasnas, is purush. But it ain't my purush. It's the one purush, whose nature is infinite. And ultimately, um, achinteya, inconceivable. Anyway, Mr. Scott, the other Scott, writes, The highest self is unhindered by fluctuations or karmas. Fluctuations as uh, chitta vritti, the vritti of chit, which is not only the subconscious storehouse vasanas arising, but the conscious mind uh, jumping around like a triple Gemini. I have a close friend who's a triple Gemini. It's very difficult to be a triple Gemini. Boy, oh boy. So, uh, yeah, uh, true nature is unhindered by chitta vritti and by the karmas, which are associated with vasanas, the tendencies, which are either severely weakened or uprooted and gone and don't arise. And as the path progresses, as we develop on the so-called path, or the pathless path, because there isn't anything substantial there either, uh, increasingly the, the chit storehouse or the vasanas or the subconscious or lower triad blockages diminish. Right. So, uh, that's the way it goes. <laughs> uh, and he here writes, the self, capital S, liberated from Prakriti. It's liberated actually from um, ignorance-based grasping aversion um, relations with Prakriti or 
being in the dualistic condition. So the self liberated from prakriti, quote, has an absolute consciousness established in its own self. This is all from Patanjali. Has satchit, which here could be called absolute, con here he's saying absolute consciousness or uh, reality awareness, absolute awareness, um, completely transpersonal, uh, apersonal, non-personal, or transcending the personal fully, but I guess in touch with the personal. This is very similar to what can happen, what happens in a microcosm after death. After death, there's expansion of awareness because it's freed from the limitations of the veil associated with the 3D body brain. The 3D body brain is a big filter. It's a filter on the faucet, on the hose of Kundalini pranic flow. And it's important. Um, after death, the yellow ray body brain system falls off, falls away. Consciousness is a bit more <laughs> in sat, uh, Tatsat, a little bit more, depends on one's development. So the self liberated from Prakriti or <laughs> grasping aversion ignorance has absolute awareness established by itself, in, intrinsically. It's basically um, inherent absolute awareness. And that's the point, it's inherent established in its own self, but it ain't a conceptual self. It's intrinsic absolute awareness. That's the point. The, the self-realization is the, the liberation of the inherent. <laughs> liberation of true nature. is the Self-realization is the realization of true nature, which is intrinsic or inherent in the seeker, or is the true nature of the seeker. But the seeker's conception of what they're seeking is mistaken. We know, we can, can say, you know, tat satchit, satchit, uh, awareness, suchness, reality, uh, awareness, uh, awareness of, of reality, which is such and thus as it is, which is <laughs> akin to parabrahman or paramapan. Uh, this is not of a personal self, nor is it outside the in inherent nature of the seeker. If you can do that. He goes on, eight aids to yoga, meaning ashtanga, enable the thinking principle chit. So here you see there's a different definition of the word chit. Here it's as the thinking principle, which is different than chit as the storehouse of subconscious. And again, Nityananda talking about, or anybody talking about Satchitananda, is the talking of the bliss, the Ananda of Satchit, or the Chit of Sat. And it ain't subconscious Sat. <laughs> it's not a personal storehouse subconscious Sat. <laughs> the the <laughs> reality, awareness of the subconscious. Well, the whole being is, is at last in... Uh, tatsat, not simply the subconscious. So you got to see that different people use the same sans use Sanskrit words in very different ways. Thinking principle chit is very more similar to manas. In any case, <laughs> whatever you want to, whatever whatever portion of the mind you're defining, uh, what what is the basis, the personal basis of awareness, 
is liberated from ignorance-based bondage and then attains what he says discriminative discernment this is a Vivek Khyati and thus reflects Purush, spirit, which is also a bad word, bad translation of Purush. So the liberation of the inherent, of the intrinsic, of true nature, you know, true nature realizes true nature. The seeker who doesn't real, who doesn't yet know or has doesn't yet fully live in in resonance with or from um, true nature. Um, the level, the concepts of uh, mistaken identity, mistaken identity falls away. The experience, the perception, the limited perceptions that lead to an experience of fashioned identity, concocted identity, uh, fabricated identity, those perceptions end. Thus ends the experience of concocted or composited or fabricated fashioned identity meanwhile there there there's still the one that seeks and the one that seeks then is liberated from false uh, identity because uh, the limited perception is less limited <laughs> the limits of perception those certain limits of perception are gone thus you can say that perception expands, expansion of awareness, perception, you know, cleansing of the doors of perception. But in some sense, actually, Gautama nails it and says, uh, there's the, the cessation of perception. This is beyond Blake. <clears throat> William Blake talks about cleansing doors of perception, just like Hui uh, um, Nung's uh, opponent, <laughs> the other monk who was going to get the job who didn't get the job was talking about clean, you know, clean the mirror of the dust, cleanse the dusty mirror daily. And Hui Nung basically said, there is no mirror, there is no dust. Realizing that is the dustless, which is the deathless. Uh, and he got the job. And so <clears throat> uh, William Blake says, cleanse the doors. When the doors of perception were cleansed, man would see reality as it is infinite. Uh, and Gautama saying, no. You don't need to cleanse doors of perception. There's essentially the cessation of arising perception, which goes along with the cessation of arising false uh, identity or associated with subjective personal consciousness, visjana. So the <clears throat> cessation of the arising of perception and selfhood, mistaken selfhood, uh, that, is, that, that <laughs> goes to tatsachit, tatsachit. Uh, awareness of the boundless, of the intrinsic and the inherent, which is not personal, and then, then you know that this is the yogi, the yani, uh, realizing his own death or the death of the one, uh, the one self becoming infinity. The, the realization of yana, uh, atman, uh, dissolves into paramatman which is of satchit or tatsachit, where <clears throat> the true nature of Atman <laughs> is liberated or the uh, uh, final identity as unity, I am one. That identity falls away too 
because perception is seen as anichanatadoka, the emptiness, the sunya of perception, goes to the percept, the, the sunya of vijnana. <laughs> so the emptiness of perception and the emptiness, anichanatadoka, the three characteristics, three marks associated with perception and associated with vijnana, is seen in practice. Uh, the the illusory nature of subjectivity, the illusory, impermanent, empty nature of perception, is seen <laughs> in deep, deep samadhi. At that point, the quote yani goes experiences his own death, as Nisargadatta said, <clears throat> and then atman goes to paramatman or jivatman, um, falls away, revealing paramatman. And it's not even two things happening. It's not like this goes into that. I just talk this way because I'm not finished. And it's easy, it's, it's very difficult not to talk dualistically until we're absolutely free of the illusion of dualism. So we can think, or I can say, uh, Paramatman merges with Atman, or, or I'm sorry, Atman, Jivatman merges with Paramatman, the Yani, Sixth density, higher self merges with the logos, the you know, and becomes Paramatman, uh, which is at, which is one with Brahman, or the logos, intelligent infinity. Um, but it isn't two things; it's one shedding falsehood. It's a revealing. Uh, awakening is a revealing. It's the path of revelation, the path of apocalypse, the apocalyptic path is not scary, scary, it's freeing, freeing. That's why they call it moksha. It's freeing the one from its own bondage. Freeing Godhead, or the Logos, in drag, you know, the uh, octavic drag story time, story hour of the octave. <laughs> the Logoic uh, Logos in drag in the appearance of seven rays in the appearance, with the appearance in the drag of solar systems and planets and bodies and beings, the illusion um, doesn't arise. And and then, you know, I mean, again, I don't know, I'm getting, going beyond my headlights here. So, in any case, it isn't two things becoming one, it's one being increasingly free of um, uh, false, uh, limited perception or perception, <laughs> dualistic perception, leading to dualistic uh, subjective separative identity. <laughs> so anyway, going on, <laughs> if you're still here, if you can handle this, it's good stuff, you know, we're uh, flying, going fast. Patanjali from Alex Scott, I really hope to finish this page. Patanjali says that the eight aids to yoga include, <laughs> yeah, well, this is his summation of the eight limbs. First, the first five and the final three, we can say. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Prachahara, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. The first five aids are indirect. The next three aids are direct aids. The indirect aids, the first five, are referred to as outer or external. The direct aids, final three, are referred to as inner or internal. This whole thing also falls away, inner and outer, uh, with yana and beyond. 
The first five, yama niyama, are the first two, restraint and observances. Not much different than panchashila or ten dasasila, the monastic and lay code, Buddhist code of morality, ethics, which is very similar to Ten Commandments without any thou shalt not or punishment. There's consequence. <laughs> consequence is not reward or punishment, it's law. So, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood is observances. And avoiding wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood is restraint. <laughs> Babo, yama niyama. Then asana, pranayama, and prachahara. So, one, two is uh, shila. <laughs> yama niyama is shila. Right conduct, speech, <laughs> action, livelihood versus wrong and avoiding wrong when when dhammapada 183 says uh, you know avoid evil uh, cultivate good purify mind this is ashtanga yoga boom <laughs> the the heart of buddhism the heart of buddha dhamma of dhammapada 183 or 184 avoid evil cultivate good purify mind this is ashtanga yoga you know, if you're going to tell me the, if the Buddhists tell me the Hindu system is inferior, I say, no, there are only yogis with inferior development. But this system will go all the way. <laughs> it's the same as Srila Samadhi Prajna. Duh. It's the same. It's just a different formulation. And so, <laughs> observance of Sila which is called <laughs> here Yama Niyama, or Niyama observances, Yama restraint is the same. That's called the first foundation, Shila. The second is called Samadhi, and the third is Prajna or Panya in Buddhism, or, you know, the Buddhist uh, Buddha Dhamma. And in many ways, um, uh, the, the limbs three, four, five, after the first two, are of the preparation for Samadhi, which itself is the preparation for uh, Panya, Prajna. So, asana is of body postures, pranayama, breath regulation, and prachahara, withdrawal of the senses. Okay? <laughs> Those are, that's necessary for any effective uh, samyama, or any effective samadhi. So, while uh, Buddhism says sila samadhi prajna, or panya, uh, yoga sutras say uh, ashtanga, and the first two is sila, and really, while the next three are considered outer, they're simply the preparatory for samadhi, which is of the last three limbs, which is called samyama, which is dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. <laughs> so the whole three is samyama, which in ca you know leads to samadhi, and that's called samadhi in the middle of sila samadhi prajna. Then. It's known here that samadhi is not the end of the line. And so the next step is called realizations. In Buddhism, it's panya. Shila samadhi goes to panya. Inside, vipassana, vipassana. And uh, here, it's simply there's a lead up to it with asana, pranayama, and prachahara, which go very well to Buddhist meditation. Even if the practice is anapanasati, uh, pa asana, pranayama, and prachahara to some degree as preparatory, is very useful. Then, 
<laughs> Finally, you have Samyama. Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. Okay, so the eight aids or means to yoga are called Ashtangas or Angas. The last, the Ashtangas, the Angas. Thus, Patanjali's yoga, Ashtanga, or eight-limbed, is an eightfold path toward perfect concentration. And that's not the end of the path. Mm. So, then there's a discussion of Yama, Niyama, which I don't want to get into. There's a discussion of Asana and Pranayama, Pratyahara. It's, of course, these things are very useful, even if one's doing Buddhist technique. Then, uh, the last matter that I'll take from this page is the lead up as you know the, the, the bridge into Swami Jay's discussion of Samyama he says Mr. Alex Scott the three direct aids to yoga the last three Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi which is in the Buddhist trio Samadhi and uh, Samadhi basically are called Samyama perfect restraint okay same as uh, yama niyama. So it's very interesting that technique is restraint. Technique is not of moral restraint, but technique is of mind-body mind restraint. Not simply do no harm, but um, develop concentration and settle down. And so they're called samyama when they're together applied to the same object. <laughs> They're applied. To, they're always applied to the same object. Uh, if one is seeking liberation, that's the object, you know. Mastery of this perfect restraint or moving towards something perfection is a means to insight, prajna, well, whereby, and so that's <laughs> complete concord with Buddha Dhamma, that <laughs> samyama goes to prajna. Uh -huh. Then. He concludes, whereby knowledge is attained of the self and of the tattvas, principles of reality. That's where the Buddhist disagrees. Meanwhile, the self is not um, a person, <laughs> is not separate from infinity. So, <laughs> don't worry about it. And tattvas, principles of reality, is, uh, you know, the, the Hindu Vedantic predilection for cosmology. To understand gunas and tendencies and the specifics that the action of light, not simply the source of light or freedom from any bondage. Uh, okay, so that finishes the Alex Scott page, and we're simply now on the Swami Jay's page of Samyama. And we have 42 minutes down, and I'll, I've gone into this before, I'll just take it as far as we can. So, okay, Samyama is of the three higher ashta or tanga tangas ashtangas tangas uh, so we've got dharana dhyana samadhi of course that's called effective meditation technique and practice and the purpose of the first five is to build the tool or to be the foundation i mean you can't get to samadhi without sila. You can't get to samyama without uh, some degree some degree of working on the first five um, which are of moral behavioral restraint and then body mind consciousness energy restraint that 
would then lead to the higher tangas or uh, uh, successful concentration in meditation, then there'll be then insight can come, and that's what I would, would focus on on this page. So he said, samyama is for subtler practice. Samyama is the finer tool, is the name of the page. He writes, this tool, samyama, is the means of reaching ever subtler levels of non-attachment, which was introduced near the beginning of the Yoga Sutras as one of the primary practices, samyama, and subtler levels of understanding. Samyama is applied to numerous objects outlined throughout the remaining sutras of chapter 3. Okay? Uh, samyama is, is basically successful development of samadhi where uh, dhyana or dharana and dhyana is the basis of samadhi so let's just call it samadhi which of course requires concentration in a dedicated um, time space called meditation practice all right so it can be applied to numerous objects. Um, it really means that the concentrated awareness, one point in a state of concentration uh, of samadhi, is useful for doing deeper work. What deeper work? So the next section called "Like the Surgeon's Scalpel." Samyama is like the surgeon's scalpel. I wouldn't even say that. I would really. Uh, anyway, I, I don't agree with everything he's writing, but the main. Comprehension, I totally agree with. You can figure out whether you think it's true or not, but I'm in substantial agreement, but not with every word. Samyama, he says, is like the surgeon's scalpel, razor-sharp tool of discrimination. Right. <laughs> it's vivek, or buddhi, that is the tool. Used for deep introspection, eventually uncovers the, quote, jewel of the self, the core of our being, uncovers reality, <laughs> it becomes aware of tatsat. That's it. <laughs> becomes aware of reality as it is beyond concept and fabrication, beyond limited <laughs> identity, false identity-based perception. You can call that the jewel of the self. You can also call that the absolute. And you can say in the core of our being, but it's not in or out, and it's not ours or yours. It's reality beyond Maya, beyond the ten fetters. He goes on, once the inner light dawns through Samaya, or extended Samadhi, it's used to examine, examine stages of subtle objects where they're normally veiled or far away. Finest discrimination finally leads to liberation. Where the Brahmins in the communities that Gautama was addressing, where where there are suttas, uh, Gautama addressing wayward Brahmins who are receptive. They were not doing, they had not taken this samyama or their samadhi practice far enough. And that's not a fault of the Vedas, but a fault of calcification, <laughs> ossification, uh, distortions hardening over the centuries to the time 500 BC when Gautama uh, arose in this world. So, but it's, uh, I would agree that um, by extended samadhi, you know, <laughs> we can call it samyama, but it's really 
um, concentration-based samadhi, equanimity, one-pointedness, uh, calm abiding. By that, um, some kind of inner light dawns, or there is increasing light, not necessarily, not, not only visually, or not particularly visually, but in terms of knowing, the light of knowing dawns by extended samadhi. <laughs> so long as you're not, samadhi means not popping up sankara, you know, not, not endless streaming of thinking, feeling, self-referentiality. That's not happening. So then, one can examine objects. Well, the most important objects in Gautama's teaching was <laughs> the five skandhas. If you see the three marks, the three characteristics of the five skandhas, then one has turned the light of vivek or discernment. It's basically high-quality attention. It's concentrated awareness, uh, called bright, steady attention, but it's objectless, or it's just from from it's it arises from the nature of the seeker. But it's not necessarily tied to objects. But it will uh, see uh, the nature of objects. What objects, particularly the five skandhas, <laughs> form, feeling, perceptions. Sankara or thought fabrications and subjective consciousness itself. Looking at those objects, <laughs> we can go beyond prakriti and realize purush, which is another way of saying going beyond uh, grasping aversion, ignorance, or anicchanata dukkha, impermanence, insubstantiality, and stress. Uh, seeing the stressfulness. Um, of phenomenal existence, the, the selfhood, the current small s selfhood, the phenomenal self, phenomenal identity. What a phenomenal identity. The, the, Anicchanata Dukkha, the three marks, the three characteristics, how phenomenal identity, <laughs> my me, my thinking, feeling, my body, mind, spirit, this whole thing of me, 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 is stressful, impermanent, and insubstantial, and not purush, or not reality, or not tatsat. It's a concoction. Beca what does it mean? I'm a concoction? No, it means the basis is illusory. What's the basis? Subjectivity, separative identity, and continually arising perception and thought uh, conception. That whole thing is of the problem. While its nature is, you know, <laughs> infinitude, um, because there's craving, clinging, grasping, aversion, ignorance, and all that, we, mm, we take the unreal as real, and we take the stressful as unstressful, and we take the uh, insubstantial as substantial, or the not-self as self, and we go to town on making drama and narrative, the the you know the drama of the, uh, the, the drama of deluded infinity, <laughs> the drama of self-deceiving um, Godhead. Things are not as they appear, nor are they otherwise. Uh, the drama ends when we see 
when we develop, you know, vairagya, dispassion, disinterest, detachment, that's pratyahara to some degree. Withdrawal of the senses from the common attachment to worldly engagement, as well as engagement with the personal mind. Those detachments, renunciations are critical. And then uh, the intrinsic and the inherent uh, is seen. And that goes to tatsachit or satchit. Finally, the last section of the top, the last paragraph of the section on the top, going past the video or ignorance, this process of discrimination, right, discrimination, vivek, buddhi is critical. But actually, you know, see, there may be a distinction between the insights of vivek and the work of buddhi observing manas and subconscious. So anyway, <laughs> In any case, whatever it is, whatever the words used, um, there is mundane wisdom and super mundane wisdom. There is discernment that sees illusion and there's discernment that sees uh, the real. It's, it, there may be different words in Sanskrit for seeing the, the nature of the illusory as illusory versus seeing the real, the real as real, the reality of the real. There may be different words for that, but in both cases, it's something like discernment and buddhi and a very clear seeing where the light of attention is so bright because the mind is one-pointed, quiet, concentrated, but not stuck on an object. The sky is bright and cloudless, and thereby one can see actually one can sense the energy flows in the sky after the clouds are gone. One can sense, one can see the nature of the sky beyond the clouds. When there are no more clouds, one can investigate the nature of the sky, which is the nature of, of uh, subjective consciousness, and see the uh, illusory nature of subjectivity and, self and, and separativeness. And the, the fact that, the, you know... <laughs> Uh, it's all uh, what we think we know is um, commonly not not true. We're mistaken. Anyway, going past the video of ignorance, this process of discrimination allows the yogi to gradually move past the many forms of the four types of ignorance or avidya, which are, and this is like, hello, did you steal this from Gautama? Maybe. The four types of ignorance or avidya uh, from Patanjali. One, regarding that which is transient as eternal. Two, mistaking the impure for pure. Three, thinking that which brings misery to bring happiness. Four, taking that which is not self to be self. It's the three marks, basically, the three characteristics. Uh, not knowing transience or anicca. Not knowing purity or taking what's not pure for pure. Whatever pure is, and this is, this is the difference, that is one point that's different. But number three and four are the same. Thinking that which brings misery to bring happiness, not seeing dukkha, and taking that which is not self to be self, not seeing anatta, anatta, which is not seeing sunya. Okay, so the four forms of ignorance are not knowing anicca, impermanence, not knowing anatta, no self or insubstantiality, not knowing dukkha or stress, not knowing them means presuming they aren't. 
pres not presuming this sense of identity is a substantial self, presuming that uh, my happiness is uh, is independent from suffering or stress. To me, I, it's very clear now. Everything. If you're looking at that level, if you're seeking sukkah, you'll always get sukkah dukkah. Boom. If you're seeking sweet, you'll always get bittersweet. But if there's no craving, clinging, grasping uh, version associated with wanting the sweet and hating the bitter, or wanting sukkah and not wanting dukkah, if if it's the grasping, the craving, the uh, you know craving, clinging, tana, ubadana, grasping, aversion, ignorance, it's the distorted approach or the um, craving, clinging-based uh, engagement that makes the problem. Uh, to the extent that we're clinging, craving, we want sukkah, not dukkah. Duh. We want permanence, not impermanence. When I want something, I want not only to have it forever, I mean, I'm not thinking generally, I want to get this so I can lose it soon. I want to have happiness because I know uh, it's going to end in uh, six hours. No, I want it because I think it is and I think it's substantial. And there is some vague confusion thinking it's eternal or it's abiding when it's not abiding. But just seeking sukkah, you're going to always get sukkah dukkah. Just seeking the sweet, you're always going to get sweet, bittersweet. And, and that's a subtle point. Um, and <laughs> what should one do? Should one not seek the sweet? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I would just say refine your seeking. And un unfortunately, or fortunately, on the path, or in if if we you know seeking, learning, seeking, learning, growing, seeking, or learning, growing, helping, if we ever seeking to be well, to be more well, to know more clearly, to be free of uh, disturbance, to be free of pain. Um, more and more and more we will uh, stop seeking that which is too much sukkah dukkah. Meaning, where there's too much dukkah, the sukkah doesn't even register. <laughs> I won't seek, I'm, we won't be seeking what we were seeking yesterday, tomorrow, if we keep growing, because tomorrow we'll see there's more dukkha in this than I am willing to put up with. There's more bitter in this bittersweet than I'm willing to uh, eat. And now bitter is a beautiful taste in Chinese medicine. It's, uh, it's the flavor taste of the heart, heart, heart meridian, heart um, organ system. And that, <laughs> uh, what I forgot, Chong Man Cheng, uh, invest in loss which is really eat bitter. It's like making peace with eating bitter um, is akin to an investment in loss in that one expects there'll be some degree of bitter in all my sweet. One expects, one knows there'll be some degree of loss in all my gain and pain in all my pleasure and uh, disappointment or stress in in all the beauty, lovely that I'm seeking and finding. Okay. 
you know, the, the bittersweet nature of um, craving-based experience. That's called not taking, uh, not taking that which is of dukkha to be sukkha without dukkha, <laughs> not taking the bittersweet as sweet, because it ain't bittersweet. It, it ain't sweet, it's bittersweet. So, uh, seeing clearly, uh, this may be buddhi seeing manas, uh, or some phenomenal vivek, viveka discernment. Uh, this is wisdom. So there's wisdom applied to the phenomenal, and there's wisdom applied to the absolute. The wisdom that sees the phenomenal as, as not um, the goal. That's the point of this distinction between Purush and Prakriti, is to see true nature um, and drop our fantasy, our um, compartmentalized, distorted, self-deceiving uh, beliefs, uh, to think that, that getting what I want that is a gain of pleasure is only gain and pleasure is wrong. To, to think that what I do now is has a consequence only now is wrong. It has a consequence later, too. And it may have great consequence, or not, but it, it, it's more than limited to the moment or the aftermath. So all of this is seeing uh, more of the true nature of, you know, seeing Prakriti as Prakriti, seeing the impermanent as impermanent, seeing Sukkadukkha as Sukkadukkha, or seeing the reality of dukkha in all sukkha, which doesn't mean it's all screaming misery, but it's sukkha dukkha. It's all bittersweet. What is? The experience based in, in subjective craving. That's the point. When the ten fetters exist, all that the apparent self that exper experiences the ten fetters is sukkha dukkha, at best. At worst, it's dukkha dukkha. Because there ain't no sukkha sukkha, except for the formless realms. But in the formless realms, uh, there isn't... Uh, <laughs> one can't really appreciate them in some sense, or the, the one that sees is, is quite dissolved. But seeing, you know, this, this distinction, Vivek, the, the way they're calling uh, distinguishing Prakriti from Parush is basically just like these four. Just... <laughs> And whatever pure impure is, but it's basically the three marks and the three characteristics plus one. <laughs> so uh, these four types of avidya, three of them are exactly the same as the three characteristics and marks of Gotama in Buddha Dhamma and Nichanatadukkha. <laughs> Why? Well, maybe Patanjali borrowed from Gotama. Maybe he compiled <laughs> the the Buddha Dhamma at that time. So, um, okay, that's, um, let me just see something. Yeah, this, and so this whole, these paragraphs are of 3.4. Uh, section 3, chapter 4, or shlok, or sutra 4, I'm not sure if it's shlok or sutra, which are Sanskrit terms for verse or chapter or section. The, the summation he gives, yeah, this will be it. 
The three processes of dharana, dhyana, dhyana, samadhi, taken together on the same object, place, or point called samadhi, samaya, samyama, sorry, samyama, trayam ekatra, ekatra samyama, trayam, the three, same as tree, T-R-I, as a Sanskrit root of the word three, ekatra, ikatra, together as one, samyama, and the three <laughs> limbs. Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi. The three together as one is Samyama. And that's the, the basis then of Adipanya or realization or insight or Vipassana or what they're calling distinguishing um, Purush from Prakriti or seeing the three marks clearly and stop fooling yourself thinking that not self is a self thinking that the sukha dukkha is uh, sukha only uh, and seeing not not realizing what's impermanent uh, phenomena are impermanent and ever shifting Anicca. and that Gautama did say I believe at some point if you understand Anicca, you'll know the whole of my Buddha Dhamma. This is very true and very deep, actually. So, if you want to know uh, the heart of the three characteristics, the three marks, focus on Anicca, impermanence. Uh, seeing the impermanence, seeing impermanence at ever deeper levels of the phenomenal apparent self. Seeing the impermanence of perception, seeing the impermanence of Vijnana. This is a great piece of work. Anyway, I hope it was useful, and I uh, hope you're well. Keep taking good care of yourself. At this time of the uh, ascending green ray, while the 3D repeaters either go about killing each other or killing themselves or just doing their best to make to get along in this um, end times social complex. So, take good care. See you next time, and good night.